Well, good morning, City Light Church. My name is John Randall. Uh, I lead the college ministry here at City Light. It is my joy and privilege to unpack God's word this morning as we continue our sermon series in the life of David. And if you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28. Well, I've titled today's message, Afraid, Alone, and Refusing to Pay Attention which I also think is a fair title for their Huskers football season this year. Hey, hope is coming. They are eventually going to win a game, I promise. They have to eventually win. It has to come. The future can only be upward. Uh, Well, hey, about three years ago, uh, afraid, alone, and refusing to pay attention totally defined my Christmas vacation. I was planning a road trip. I loaded up my family, which included my wife, my uh, uh, seven-month-old, and our three-year-old into our car, and we were planning to drive from Colorado to Florida. That's about 2,154 miles. This trip was a nightmare. It was a nightmare, and that is saying it lightly. It took us around 10 hours just to get out of the state of Colorado because the day before we left, it had dumped about four feet of snow. You would think I'd have the wherewithal not to drive across the country in the middle of winter, let alone try to drive across the Rockies. Uh, But like I said in this story, I wasn't paying much attention. Well, not only was the weather a problem, but I had forgot to bring Dramamine, and our middle child gets car sick. And so there's nothing quite more humbling than being on the side of the road trying to clean vomit out of a car seat, thinking, I might need all of the wipes that Costco sells just to clean this up. I should have turned around right then and there, but I didn't. And then we get into Texas. And in Texas, we run into a winter storm that I kid you not was named Goliath. It was named Goliath. And as we uh, hit Amarillo, there are these words flashing everywhere. Blizzard warning, 100% chance of snow, take shelter. You ever hear a warning or maybe you get an alert on your phone and you're just like, yeah, that's not, that doesn't really apply to me, right? Did you do it? All right, apparently I'm the only one. Uh, when, I, when I see stuff like that, sometimes I think, oh, that doesn't really apply to me. So guess what we kept doing? We just kept driving. We kept going. But Winter Storm Goliath wasn't playing games. This thing had like 60 mile an hour winds. And I'm like beginning to white knuckle our car just to keep it on the road. And as I'm looking out the window, I'm seeing these steel overhangs on gas stations where you pump. They are literally swaying in the wind like leaves on a tree in a small breeze. It's at this moment where my heart begins to kind of beat really fast. And fear begins to grip me. And with my family all asleep in the car, I have never felt more alone. So I do the thing that I only could do. I cry out to God. And I'm in my driver's seat and I just whisper, God, are we going to die? Is this how it ends? Like, what did I get my family into? God, if you can just get me through the state of Texas alive, I will give you whatever you want. Now, in fairness, I feel like anybody who's draw, driven through the state of Texas at least prays that like every hour because it just takes forever to get through that state. But I was legitimately terrified in this moment. Well, God did answer our prayer. We made it through Texas, but this trip was not over. It got worse before it got better because when we reached Florida about 20 minutes before our final stop, a deer decided to hop out in the middle of the road while I was going 75 down the interstate, and we plowed right into that. Now, we were all fine, uh, but this trip ended with me seriously considering selling the car, 
flying back to Colorado and literally just handing in my driver's license at the DMV. I was afraid, I was alone, and I did not pay attention to the warnings and the hazards and the hang-ups that came with this trip. Well, this morning, we're going to encounter King Saul, who's at the end of his life. And we're going to see that he, too, is afraid, that he is alone, and he has not paid attention to all that God has said. And just like me, he has kept on going. The circumstance that we find him in in 1 Samuel 28 makes my road trip look like a day at Disney World. Things have just gone from bad to worse for Saul. What we just read in 1 Samuel 28 might be the most bizarre, weirdest story in all of Scripture. It's like Star Wars meeting Harry Potter. And in fact, this story is so bizarre, like I tried to find sermons that were preached on this. There are very few. Most preachers don't go near this passage with a 10-foot pole. But we here at City Light believe that the Word of God speaks. And we believe that it speaks on all of its pages. And so this morning, my hope and my prayer is that the word of God speaks to you and to me this morning. Because truth is, I don't know where you're at this morning. Perhaps you are feeling overwhelmed with your work. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed with your kid or your finances, and you are feeling utterly alone. Maybe you're uncertain about the future, and so fear has you asking questions like, what if I never get that job? What if I never get married? What if I always live in the same spot? Maybe your life isn't turning out like you thought, and you have or are considering compromising on obeying what God commands in Scripture for your life. No matter where you're at this morning, I actually have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is we're going to read about the tragic ending of the life of Saul. He was afraid. He was alone. He's refusing to pay attention to God and his word. But here's the good news. That doesn't have to be your ending. Saul's ending doesn't have to be your ending. In fact, if you think your ending has already been written yet, I've got good news because we serve a God who redeems tragic endings. He wants to change you from a person that is afraid alone and refusing to pay attention to his word into a person that is affirmed in Christ, aligned with his word, and able to pay attention to all that God has said in his word. Amen? Amen. So this morning, as we work our way through the text, what I want to do is we're going to highlight Saul, this man who's afraid, alone, and not paying attention to God, and then I'm going to contrast that with how we can avoid that tragic ending. So if you're taking notes, my first point is this. Saul's distress leads to disobedience. But for you and for me to avoid that, trusting in God leads to obedience. So in the text, in 1 Samuel 28, in verse 5, we read this. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim. Urim was this thing that the priests wore. It, was, it allowed Israel to actually consult what the will of God was. We don't have that in the New Testament because if you have received Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit will help reveal God's will to your life. So don't go looking for the Urim. You don't need it. You need the Holy Spirit. All right, moving along. Uh, picking up back verse 5. Did not have the Urim. 
I'm losing my place on here. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Notice that the text says that Saul was afraid, that he trembled greatly. Why was Saul afraid? Well, the text actually hints at that. He's about ready to go and face the Philistines in battle. He's about ready to engage in war. But here's the thing. Saul has fought the Philistines before, and he has won. So why is he afraid in this moment? Well, I think he's afraid because Saul is alone. Notice what the text says and doesn't say. David, who's God's anointed, the spirit rests on David. David's not with him. In fact, Saul has pushed David so far away from him that David is now living in the enemy territory. He's in the Philistines' land, in the land. He's allied with them, and he's about ready to go into war alongside the Philistines. The priests are not with Saul because Saul, we learned earlier, has actually killed them. There's no prophet with Saul because Samuel is dead and Samuel has also rejected Saul. And so Saul does what normal people do when they're afraid and they're alone. He cries out to God. But God is silent. There's no answer from God. Why? Because I think Saul has pushed God away as well. Saul has ignored God with his entire life. And now in a moment of desperation, he is coming to God and he's complaining that God is ignoring him. Don't we do this all the time? We ignore God with how he says, live this way. No, God, don't want you in my life. I'm going to reject you. We ignore him. And then when things get chaotic, we run to him. And then we complain that he's not responding to us. And God is just simply, I'm giving you what you wanted. Be careful in rejecting God in your life. He may just give you what you want. If you want him to leave you alone, he will leave you alone. Saul had ignored God with his whole life. If you remember back in 1 Samuel 15, we see that God had rejected Saul as king because Saul was, has rejected God and his word. This sets a trajectory of repeated disobedience in the life of Saul. But Saul, in this moment, he's so desperate that his fear leads him to even greater disobedience. We read in verse 3 that Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. This was a good thing. God said, don't have these people in your land. You don't need to go to a medium or a spiritist to figure things out. You need to trust in me. And so Saul had expelled these from the land. But literally four verses later, we see that Saul is going against his own decree. He's disobeying once again by trying to consult a medium. Have you ever been so afraid, so alone, that you become tempted to compromise on obeying God and his way for your life? You ever play the game of exceptionalism, where you just think you're the exception to the rule? Where you think, yeah, God's word and how he has uh, designed life to work, it's a nice ideal to shoot for. It's a good option for my life, but it doesn't really work in the real world. God must not know my situation. It's so desperate. I'm in such pain. This situation is so hard that I kind of need to just go over here and dabble in sin for a little bit and disobey God for a little bit just to get some release. 
Maybe we say things like, my financial situation is so busted that I don't really have to give anything to anyone. I don't have to give to the church or those in need. Or maybe we say things like, yeah, I'm living with my girlfriend. We've already had sex. So, you know, moving out and, and trying to uh, avoid that, that would just be complicated and embarrassing. And so it doesn't really matter if we continue to sleep together. Or, or maybe we think my job is so stressful, my, my home life is so chaotic, it seems like I have no free time, so it doesn't really matter if I drink excessively and get drunk. We play this game, don't we? We think we're the exception to the rule. This past week I was talking to some college students uh, in the, our college ministry, they're some of our leaders, and they were telling me about this college student who's living his life completely contrary to the scriptures. And when they approached him and asked him about this, he said, well, I'm just struggling to believe that God is real. And so because I don't believe that he's real, it justifies me going over here and living a life completely contrary to the way that he has called me to live. And as I was reflecting on this and thinking about this and how complicated the situation was, I began to do some internal work and I realized, man, I do this all the time. Virtually all of my disobedience is rooted in the fact that I am failing to trust God that he will give me enough faith to believe that he is as good as he says he is. That God is not holding out on me. That God's way is better than disobedience. See, I have no problem believing that Jesus can actually save me and get me out of hell and get me into heaven. But man, I struggle to believe and trust that God's commands and God's design and way to live is actually what's best for me. That God actually has my best in mind. Now, you might think, well, John, that makes sense, but here's the thing. I'm not going to a medium or a psychic or a spiritist on the weekend. And if you are, hopefully 1 Samuel 28 is enough of a reason to terrify you away from that. It's blatant sin. Don't go to a psychic. But I think for some of us this morning, we're like, hey, I'm not calling up Cleo, Miss Cleo, on the weekends. Like, that's just not a part of my life. Fair enough. But let me ask. Why do people consult mediums in the first place? Why do they go to psychics? Isn't it to get some kind of reassurance in life? Isn't it to get some word or sense of control over their future? You might not go to a psychic for that, but isn't it true that we turn to other things other than God to get a sense of reassurance, to get a word about our lives, and to gain control over our futures? In our attempts to get a reply from God, we go and we find a replacement for God. 1 Samuel 15, 23 says it this way, and this was actually spoken by the prophet Samuel to Saul right when he had lost the kingdom. It says this, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. See, we might not practice divination like Saul, but don't we all rebel like Saul does? We, we prop up other things like money, sex, marriage, kids, a job, our reputation. And we worship these things like idols. We put God's God-like demands on them. We expect them to deliver what only God can. And we think that if we can just get these things right in our life, if we can just get them to where we want them, then maybe the fear will go away. 
that maybe we can be reassured and gain control over our futures, that maybe, just maybe, we won't feel alone anymore. But City Light, these things will never bring you what you want. Compromising on obeying God will always lead to sin, corrupting you from the inside out. And sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It will always take from you more than you are willing to give. And it will leave you afraid, alone, and refusing to pay attention. The reason that dark knowledge from mediums is wicked and wrong is because it undercuts what God calls us to do. God doesn't want us to know everything and gain control over everything. God calls us to trust him with everything and in everything. Saul's fear led to disobedience, but when we are afraid and alone, may we look to God and trust him that his salvation is sure and that his ways are best for us. Unfortunately for Saul, his downward spiral continues and things go from bad to worse, which leads me to my second point. Saul's disobedience leads to death. But for you and me this morning, listening to God can lead to life. So Saul, he goes to the medium. He goes to this witch at Endor. And we pick up the story in verse 8. It says this, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. Here's what's interesting about that, that verse. Saul has literally taken off his robe, which is a representation of his place as king over Israel. It symbolically represents that the kingdom at this moment is being taken away from Saul. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers. Necromancers are just people that consult the dead. Kids, don't Google that. Ask your parents. Um, (laughs) Necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up for me Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground, and he paid homage. Okay, let me just pause here and address this bizarre event in this story. Did this witch literally just conjure up a ghost from the dead. No. I don't think the witch conjured up the ghost. I think God conjured up Samuel. Because notice that Samuel doesn't speak on behalf of the witch. Samuel speaks on behalf of God. Now, either this woman is a fake, and she is not used to dealing, or or she's not used to this thing working, And so when a ghost actually does come up, it freaks her out. Or she's usually consulting with the demonic. And instead of getting a demon speaking, now you have a prophet of God speaking. Either way, I believe that God brings up Samuel in this incredibly unique situation. You don't see this anywhere else in the Bible, so it's not prescriptive. It's a unique situation, and I think God does it on purpose to get a point across to Saul. And the point is this. Continued disobedience... And an unrepentant heart will end in death. 
Continued disobedience and an unrepentant heart will end in death. The irony of Saul in this story is that Saul already knows this, but he's refusing to listen. Samuel basically tells Saul, bro, I've already told you this. I already told you what was going to happen. Saul, the kingdom is not yours anymore. It's going to be given to David because of your disobedience. But Saul is so desperate in this situation that instead of listening to God in the first place and repenting and turning from his sin and actually relinquishing the kingdom to David, he turns to anyone and everyone, including a witch and a ghost, to get the word that he wants to hear. This week, I saw an absolutely devastating news article. I saw that the unbelievably tasty beverage of LaCroix is getting sued. Did you guys see this? Apparently, LaCroix doesn't have natural ingredients. Apparently, it uses synthetic ingredients. I was so discouraged when I read this. Like, I, seriously, I, I doubted my existence for a moment. Like, if LaCroix isn't real, then nothing is real. Say it ain't so, Internet. This cannot be true. I had some choice words on my Facebook status for all those people that were criticizing LaCroix. Had to delete them because I'm a Christian. But in my heart of hearts, I knew this couldn't be true. This could not be true about LaCroix. It had to be false, because if it wasn't false, then like the 50 LaCroix I drink a day are going to end in an early grave for me. But I did what people do. When you come across something in the internet that you disagree with and you think is wrong, guess what? You go to all the other stuff in the internet trying to find stuff that, you, that already backs up what you already believe. Don't act like you don't do that. I, I, this is what I did this week. And so I have no idea if what I was reading was true or not. I mean, they were using a lot of words and chemicals and medical Latin words that people from Wayne State probably can't pronounce. But here is my point in all of this. I knew what I wanted to hear, and I was determined to find it, even if it wasn't true. I knew what I wanted to hear, and I was determined to find it, even if it wasn't true. And this is what Saul is trying to do here. He already knows what he wants to hear. He's ignoring the truth. He only cares about winning this victory against the Philistines. He doesn't care about what God actually wants to say in him. This is a tragic ending because Saul's problem is not the Philistines. Saul's problem was not preserving his throne. Saul's problem is Saul. God could have defeated all of Saul's enemies, and he still would have refused to listen to what God was trying to say. Saul's greatest problem wasn't his physical death. It was his spiritual death. He was being separated from God. If only Saul would have repented and given the kingdom over to David, it would have been a different ending. But Saul did not care about this. He only wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. Saul didn't need a fresh revelation from God. Saul needed a relationship with God. How many of us this morning, we want some fresh revelation from God? If, if only we got that word from God, right? If only we could mine the scriptures and find that magic special verse that somebody can crochet and put above our bed. It's just some point of action. God, give me something. Tell me what to do. But in our heart of hearts, we have no desire for God himself. We have no desire to actually follow him and have a relationship with him. Have you ever pursued a word from God and failed to actually read the words of God? It's like we're telling God, why are you talking to me? Why aren't you answering me? Give me a word. And God's like, I did. Read it. It's called the Bible. Now I have a question for you. Why aren't you obeying and listening to what is written in here? 
See, the problem isn't that God hasn't spoken to us. I think the problem for most of us, including myself, is that we haven't listened to what God has said. We don't want to hear what God has to say. We don't want to admit that we desperately need God. We don't want to submit our lives to him. We want to hear what we want to hear. And so we go from friend to friend. We go from pastor to pastor. We go from website to website searching for some advice on something when Scripture is clear on what we should do and how we should live. But we don't care about that. We want to find somebody who will confirm our actions so that we can feel justified in what we're doing, even if it's blatant disobedience. City Light, this morning, may we pause. And instead of asking, God, what would you have me hear today? Instead, may we ask, God, what have you already told me that I'm failing to listen to? Where have I failed to obey you? Where do I need to repent? See, Saul didn't need to go through these elaborate schemes to get a word from God. God had already revealed a word to him through the prophet Samuel. He just simply wanted Saul to listen. For you and for me this morning, I have good news. We too don't have to go through elaborate schemes to get a word from God. God has actually come to us in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, who is the ultimate prophet, and God wants us to listen to him. Jesus has declared that we can come out of the darkness, that we can bring our sins into the light because Christ, who has life in him, has shone into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And whoever follows Christ will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ offers us life. May we listen to him and find that life. But Saul, in his story, does not listen and the spiral continues. And we refine him refusing to listen and pay attention to God, which leads me to my last point. Saul's fatigue ends with his last meal. But for you and for me this morning, Christ's last meal begins our strength. After Samuel had told Saul that he's going to die in the battle, we pick the story back up. We pick the story back up in verse 20. And it says this. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was ter- terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go your way. He refused and said, I will not eat, but his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. They rose and went away that night. This is a bizarre ending to one of the most bizarre stories in all of Scripture. Saul, the king of Israel, who when he was inaugurated was prepared a meal by the prophet of God, Samuel, in the promised land. And now you have Saul at the end of his life. He's not in the promised land. He's in enemy territory. And it's not the prophet of God. It's a witch who is preparing a meal for him. 
if you zoom out of this story, you will see that 1 Samuel is wedged right in, the, or 1 Samuel 28 is wedged right in the middle of a story about David. In chapter 27, we see that David actually flees to the Philistine land out of fear of Saul. And he gets recruited into the Philistine army, and he's about ready to fight alongside them. And the story just kind of abruptly stops. We don't find out what happens to him until chapter 30. Because it shifts to the story of Saul. And then in chapter 28, or I'm sorry, chapter 29, it goes back to David. And we see that he finally gets out of the Philistine army. And then in chapter 30, he has a military victory. Why does it go back and forth like that? Why does the biblical author just put a pause on David, jump to Saul, and then pick back up with David? I think he does that because David and Saul are meant to be constantly contrasted throughout the book of First and Second Samuel. Let me just show you a couple of these contrasts. David was called a man after God's own heart. Saul was a man just after God's help. David actually wanted a relationship with God. He actually calls him Lord, which is the covenantal term for God. It's a relational name. Saul just wanted a response from God. He simply calls God God in chapter 28, which is a generic term. David leaves the Philistine camp at morning, in chapter 29, when it is light outside, Saul leaves the witch at night when it is dark outside. David kills the Amalekites and he has rewarded the kingdom. Saul fails to kill the Amalekites and loses the kingdom. David is God's choice for a king. Saul is the people's choice for a king. David goes to the Lord for guidance in chapter 30. Saul goes to a witch for guidance. When David was distressed, he strengthens himself in the Lord. We see that in chapter 29. When Saul was distressed, he strengthens himself in a meal that was prepared by a witch. Do you see the contrast between the two? Now, this doesn't mean that David's innocent. Far from it. But I think we're supposed to compare and contrast David and Saul because we're supposed to see that God is never silent on the tragic endings of history. While Saul is being brought low and it ultimately ends in his tragic death, God is raising up his anointed. He's raising up David to bring life and triumph to Israel. Now we're going to soon see that David has faults of his own. But the point remains that God's kingdom, things may be at their worst, but God is always at his best. When Jesus is brought low on the cross and it looks like it ends in tragic death, he's actually being raised up and bringing triumphant life to you and to me. To close, I want us to picture Saul. He's trembling with fear, he's breaking bread. And it's the night before he is to be executed. The story, if you know your Bibles, that's eerily similar to another story that would take place a hundred years late, hundreds of years later, where a rabbi named Jesus would break bread, would tremble with fear on the night before he was to be executed. The difference is Saul died for his own sins. Jesus died for our sins. See, before we move on from this sermon, before we leave Saul in 1 Samuel and move on to David, this is the last time we're going to see Saul. But I think we need to hammer down here and we need to see ourselves in Saul. 
We've all compromised in life and disobeyed God. We've all ignored him with the way that we are supposed to live our lives, all the while complaining that God is ignoring us. We've used God to meet our own personal agendas. We've taken from others to set up our own little kingdoms where we treat everything in life as revolving around us. And we've all received a death sentence for our sins. We've received a last meal. But Jesus enters the story. Jesus wants to enter your story and he wants to say, I will take your last meal. The last meal of sin and death that was supposed to come your way. Jesus wants to step in and take that so that you can have his light, so that you can have his life. Jesus came to live out the obedience that you and I and Saul could never live while at the same time dying for our disobedience. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one that David points to who ushers in a whole new kind of kingdom. At the end of Christ's life, it looks like a tragic ending. But it's in that ending that you and I find redemption for our own tragic stories of sin and disobedience. When we offer our sin to Jesus, we can actually find strength in his grace. Saul's distress led to his disobedience, which led to his death. And it culminated in a last meal, but city light that doesn't have to be your story. May we be a people that trust in God, obey him, and receive the last meal that that is offered to you and to me in Jesus. And then let's watch, because God will change us from the inside out. God will change us from a person that is afraid, alone, and refusing to pay attention to God's word into a person that is affirmed in Christ because of what he's done for us, that we are aligned with his word and what he commands, and that we are completely able to pay attention to the God that has saved us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, We are believing and trusting that when your word is spoken, that the Holy Spirit and his power can move on hearts. And so God, here this morning, I don't know who's in this room. I don't know their stories, but God, you do. And the beautiful thing that I do know about every single person in this room is that their story isn't over. God, we may be a people who are afraid and alone, but God, may we never be a people that are refusing to pay attention to what you want to say to us. Because God, you didn't just speak to us from heaven. You literally sent your son for us. So God, may we be a people that receive what he wants to do in our lives. God, may we trust in you because trusting in you will lead to obedience. God, obedience will lead to life. God, may your grace sustain us and may we receive all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. I ask this in your son's mighty name. Amen.